to Reptile Fight Club. With you as always is uh, my co-host, Jeff Holman. Hello. And myself, Justin Jr. We are uh, going to fight today. So excited about uh, our little brawl here. But uh, I don't know what you got going. You got anything? Um... So, you know, in the snake room, I finished installing. So I think last episode I was talking about how I uh, put in some heat panels or I've actually bought some heat panels and I got them all off gassed and I finally got them installed and I had to move around my UV light uh, in the cage. And so now everything's all set up and uh, um, I'm pretty much ready to rock and roll with my uh, Tracy I group this year. Cool. So that's good. I'm, I'm glad yeah. to have that finally settled. And yeah. um, what did you do for caging for those guys? So I built I built a plywood caging for them. Nice. Um, and, you know, similar dimensions than the old caging. They're just it's just longer. The mm-hmm. cages I put them in and bred them in are uh, 36 by 24 by 24. And these are five feet by 24 by 24. So they're just, they're just longer. They have the exact same elevated perch attached. So it's a nesting box and a perch. Uh, so there's a, there's a basking shelf that kind of leads right into the, the nesting box. The nesting box is elevated and it has a pass through so they can actually be separated in that, in that nesting box. They really like the nesting box and, and, uh, like elevate or hung from the top from the top of the yeah yeah so it's basically screwed right to the side of the cage and and uh okay. it's, it's it's right off the right hand side so i have a a whole separate like the top of the nesting box comes off so i can just access the nesting box separate uh from the cage um, oh nice yeah that's yeah a cool so yeah. and then Very uh cool. yep i cut the so i've been keeping the one of the males and then the other female um, it, the, the two I'm going to breed this year for sure, uh, mm-hmm. in, um, in separate cages and I cut the pass through for that. Uh, and, and, uh, so now I can kind of open that up as, as at will, um, but still feeding, still, still trying to get them ready. So not really ready to let them co-mingle or anything. Yeah. what did you seal the cages with? Um, I used, um, like a, a silicone, uh, just a silicone mm-hmm. sealant and then I painted the inside. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's fun. I, uh, I've been working on some cages lately as well and tried to do some, you know, fake rock work in there and stuff, make them look like the desert. I, yeah. not totally happy with my first go around. So I think I've got an, I've, I've got like three sets of the same kind of cage. I, I found all these shelving units for like really cheap. And so I bought like a bunch of shelving units and just made cages out of them. And yeah. just mounted the, some lights and, and stuff inside and, and put in some, you know, elevated hide boxes and things like that. So yeah. for some of the Antaresia and they're working pretty well, I probably need to put some vents in them. So I'm looking to 3d print some vents and, and do nice. that. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's been fun, but I, I, yeah, I enjoy building cages. I had to, built some racks. I was running out of room for babies and, and I built a, I had some plastic sitting around cause I'd ordered a bunch and hadn't gotten around to assembling all the racks. And so I threw a couple racks together and got some, uh, for those ball Python babies I got. So yeah, so I feel, I feel bad. I, I, like have, I, I have one, I have one Tracy, I, that one male, uh, that, uh, is, 
in the old cage and I built the other two cages. They're plywood and before the price of, of, of timber just went, you know, berserko. Yeah. So now I'm like, man, it'd be <laughs> cheaper to build it out of plastic. Uh, yeah. So, uh, it's it crazy. Just, yeah, it is like the price of wood, yeah. of wood and material and it's just nuts dude it's, yeah it's like yeah. it's over doubled i mean it's almost yeah. tripled in price oh so. yeah yeah just, i mean that osb plywood it was yeah. like what 10 bucks a sheet and yeah. now it's like 30 40 a sheet yeah. i'm like really are you yeah. kidding me <laughs> yeah i, I yeah. saw a hundred dollar sheet of of like uh you know pine like uh plywood so yeah. i was just like what the hell? I, what the I pity heck, anybody dude. that's trying to build a house right now. That oh, it's crazy. crazy. Just, and like yeah. people, like the, the contractors, you know, they made bids and then they yeah. start the work and all of a sudden their their costs triple. It's like, yeah, that's unsustainable. They they have to revise. Well, it. and I, I, I think a lot of those guys lock in their, they, you know, if they're, yeah, if they're large true. developers, they kind of lock in their price on materials and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, but I mean, when the prices fluctuate like that and then, you know, you're looking to, to do a, um, you know, a, a big build or something like that. I mean, how do you mitigate those prices that aren't locked in? Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're prohibitive. It, so I, I do enjoy, you know, using the plastic, but at the same time, it's hard to beat, you know, the structural <laughs> qualities of wood, mm-hmm. and, you know, plywood. Oh, for and, sure. Um, so, you know, it's, I guess to each his own or, you know, yeah. I, I, I do, I got some, uh, those plastic cages from you and they're working out yeah. really well. Uh, they're good. Those are good yeah. cages. Yeah. Those, the, yeah, there yeah, were animal plastic decent. cages that you could get in, in, you know, six weeks rather than yeah. six years. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I would have liked to have, I would have liked to have, um, you know, gotten some, some AP cages or a good, uh, you know, PVC cage, but it's just, yeah. I don't know. Just it's just, get them. It's just, it was just, yeah, it was just easier for me to use the old kind of cage design and keep things as, as, you know, um, functionally the same as they were in the old cage and just build a, uh, plywood cage that's to my, you know, kind yeah. of to my liking. So Your specifications, if, yeah. you know, if you're handy at all, that's the way to go because then yeah. you can build it how you want it. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, and I like to do that stuff on the weekend. So yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, just stuff, normal stuff's going on with my reptile collection, trying to get babies to feed. This is the time of year for that and having fun with the Agurnia. They're such cool, nice. cool lizards. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, normal, normal stuff going on. I know yeah. I've been seeing Agurnia, uh, around on Facebook and, and I'm just like, ah, no, yeah. don't, 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 don't. <laughs> yeah. They, they, this they, is the year when they, they're born usually yeah. in, you know, the middle of the summer and yeah, yep. you see them, see them for sale and stuff. They're, they look, definitely look uh, fun. And, very cool animals. Yeah. But yeah, that's there. I need, I need more animals. animals. Like I need a hole in my head right <laughs> yeah, now. So. That's, that's yeah. the hard thing is there's so many cool reptiles to keep, but yep. yeah, we have to limit yourself. Yeah. You, yeah. Wind up with more than you can handle. <laughs> I'm, I have been at that point many a times in my career. <laughs> I was at that point as well. And I, that's, yeah. I mean, I slimmed down my collection and, mm-hmm. you know, then I got, then I got into day geckos and then I'm like, oh, these things are awesome. And yeah. I'm like, oh man, you know, you can keep small pie and Teresa are awesome. Like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you go down that whole other rabbit hole oh, and yeah. you're like, and you're like and then you're like, wait, I'm going to end up in the same, but different place here if I keep <laughs> yeah. going. So yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know. I mean, I guess 
you know, it'd be nice if I had uh, all the space in the world, but living in California, you know, oh, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're very limited. Out yeah. There. <laughs> so I, yeah. I wish I could, uh, I wish I could do something like Ryan Young and, and have yeah. that whole, you know, reptile addition that's you yeah. know off his house and that looks mm. that looks amazing so yeah i'm sure he's pretty sweet he's very handy mind. yeah he oh, does yeah, a lot of is. cool cool projects and builds his own cages and yeah. had some cool ideas for cages too I, that i kind of stole off him you know looking his cage designs yeah. for especially for the entries and stuff some cool stuff yeah um yeah i uh how how's your outdoor stuff doing you, you keeping anything outside right now or good yeah hot? um no, it, it's all right. I, I've got mm-hmm. uh, my pair of coastals outside. Um, they're so they're cool. doing fine. Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. they're they're doing fine. I, I'm kind of like want to see how they do in the next year or so. Like, I want to see two years outside, and then I'll probably move yeah. my diamonds outside, and probably mm-hmm. probably get at least you know pr- probably move most of my carpets outside. I've got my mm-hmm. my Darwins. I've got albino Darwins. I've got some diamonds, and then I've got those coastals. And I'll probably yeah. if if all things go well and I, I like it, and uh, I mean it, so good so far. You know, it's that's it's, cool. Se- seems pretty locked on, pretty easy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Seems like maybe the Darwins might be, get a little too cold during the winter, but the yeah. others could handle it just fine. I'm sure, yeah, for especially sure. the diamonds. You know, it yeah. doesn't get too cold well, in I mean, California for diamonds. It was, yeah. it was. I mean, you know, it was probably, I don't know, man, maybe 50s, and those mm-hmm. coastals were just out cruising around. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. they didn't, they didn't go in from basking. They just sat out mm-hmm. there. So, I mean. You know, That's I think I just think that you know you you gotta kind of obviously if you live in a a, a Mediterranean climate, man, you, yeah. you you should you should try it. You, you yeah. definitely That's cool. uh, you 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 learn a few things and you see how uh, see how good it can be. Uh, you know. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'm yeah. jealous of like Scott Iper keeping all the you know the his yeah. and stuff outside. That's pretty definitely. cool. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That stuff. Cool, man. Anything else? Um, like we can mention the, the Southwest carpet fest or sorry, Northwest, <laughs> Northwest, yeah. Southwest, Northwest carpet fest, uh, Jeff and Kendra of Puget sound pythons are putting it on up in Bothell, Washington, That's right. September 18th. So That's right. another month or so before that happens. But yeah, that should uh, be cool. cool four man. days after my 45th birthday. Man. Whoa, you're an old I man. I know I am an old man. That's a very true statement. I feel still like an old you. man sometimes. Still got you by a year and a half, I guess. But, yeah, well, yeah. you can have it. You can keep yeah. it. Keep the yeah. keep the prize. Yeah. I'll I'll take it. It's yeah. yeah. I'm enjoying uh being being old. Nah, that's good. <laughs> it's, it's got like, its yeah. advantages, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was talking to, uh, Nick, uh, Bottini. I, I might be saying that wrong. I apologize, Nick. I didn't ask you how you pronounce your last name, but anyway, we were talking about, you know, the kind of reptile legislation and stuff and a little bit, cause he's in South Carolina where all those cobras are <laughs> idiots are yeah. letting their cobras loose for some reason. And so, um, you know, that's kind of crazy if you're in, uh, South Carolina or around that area, you know, join the fight because you know they're they're taking away a lot of the uh reptile keepers uh mm-hmm. privileges out there what, what, what happened to nick stuff. what was his what um was oh his he, he he had he bought some uh like gila monsters and beaded lizards and thought oh i should be okay with these you know they have pretty good uh venomous laws out in, yeah. in the state and and 
And like a year later, they outlawed him. So he had to sell that whole project, you know, a year after he got. And that was related to that. That that was related to that Cobra that got loose. No, I I don't think so, because that just happened recently. So I don't think they've enacted the laws that quickly. And, And it sounds like it was, you know. Fairly recently, he had to get rid of him. So I, it could be, I, I don't know the details on that, but yeah, thank, thank goodness changing, for USR changing and climate. things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, uh, and it's, yeah. It's and there's the another cobra area. loose in Texas, I think. Oh yeah. Like a forest cobra or something. Yeah. Or is that yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah, right. I seen uh, a mess. Yeah. I, I, I seen Jeff uh, Behringer posted about it and i think i think he's down in texas and i'm, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure uh that's that was where where it happened uh not a hundred percent on that but but yeah. yeah man uh yeah lock your cobras up people <sighs> jesus yeah come Sucks. on people yeah <laughs> and it only takes like one thing to kind of yeah. make everything go well it, and it crap. it's really interesting i i just feel like and and you know it feels like it moves in cycles and waves and yeah. and uh it just seems like there's a lot of i was um on the way home today there's a lot of uh of attention that seems to be on reptiles and exotics right now and i don't know if that's a concerted push from animal rights people or what you know whether just the recent instance of of certain instances that have happened that have drawn attention to it or what but you know i was like listening to npr on the way home and mm-hmm. they were talking about you know, uh, all of the large exotic animals and they were talking about big cats and, and wolves and, you know, bears and large, uh, larger mammals. Um, and, uh, they were just kind of talking about like what happens, like there's a sanctuary in San Diego. Um, they went out to the sanctuary and, you know, kind of going through like, why the sanctuary is good that these animals aren't aren't bred aren't sold for money they're you know they're there to live out their life and and uh just kind of talking about it but but it just kind of in my head was just like man this is really you know um you know seems seems to be um a sharpening of the spear so to speak um with with you know exotic animals and and a and a push towards you know very uh not the outline but just kind of the changing the the discussion around the appropriateness of uh exotic animals and you know maybe Mm. some of that's totally fair um Mm. you know I'm, i'm not sure big cats belong you know readily available for people to own and yeah um, i mean there's definitely that's the hardest thing too because if you just flat out ban them mm -hmm. that makes it easy because then nobody has to enforce it and you you know if somebody has one then it's easy to say oh that's illegal you know yeah but sometimes there's just no sense behind it you know there's i i believe that we as americans have a right to keep things if we if we're responsible and we can do it properly and you know maybe for big cats that means you have to have some kind of you know sanctuary or you have to have some kind of uh, zoo or you know whatever but 
I don't know. I mean, we saw how that worked out for Tiger King. You know, they're feeding right, expired right. meat from Walmart or something. I just don't think well, that's and, the, and, and the, the way to do things. But one of the yeah. the things they were talking about is this um, this sanctuary's got an uh, it's like a sanctuary accreditation. So there mm-hmm. there is there is a t- there is some sort of accreditation associated with it. And, yeah. And so it's yeah. you know you have to kind of hit some check boxes. Um, whereas I I don't think I would necessarily necessarily call um you know uh the 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 tiger king's facility a a sanctuary or i mean mm. that was a that was a that was a breeding facility and a and yeah a, a I, I, have heard, too. I have heard people kind of come to his defense a little bit within the reptile community that have met him and kind of know him so you know i'm not gonna say i know all the details i mean i watched the you know the the, the show sure. the, uh, tiger king but that doesn't necessarily you know, they may have portrayed him in a different light or, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, he might be just passionate about tigers and, and I, I think there does need to be like a captive bred source. We can't go out collecting tigers from the wild, you know, they yeah. need to be protected in the wild. So, you know, tigers for zoos or tigers for these, um, different, you know, smaller wildlife parks well, or whatever, and they I need mean, to come from somewhere. So somebody and, needs to breed tigers. And, and yeah. But I guess my question is like, okay, so, so you're a tiger breeder. So you breed mm-hmm. tigers. Like what, what, what is the, the outside of maybe zoos, um, you know, maybe, uh, attractions, things like that. Where, where is your market for, you know, uh, large cats, you know, yeah, it, I think it, that's and selling struggle. to the public is that's risky. Yeah, you know what I is. mean? If your cat, yeah. if your well, cat the same kills thing one with, of the kids or, you know, yeah. It's the ahead. same thing with venomous reptiles. I mean, uh, I was talking to Terry yeah. Phillip at, or, you know, went and visited him up in South Dakota. And he was saying that mm-hmm. they're having a hard time sourcing, you know, getting a, a place to buy venomous reptiles from because, you know, nobody wants the liability that nobody's breeding them because, you know, then you have to sell them to private hobbyists or whatever. And all the laws that are enacted, it's really yeah. difficult to find anything, you know, and, and this is from, a, you know, a, a kind of a private zoological institution. So that's, that's a tricky, tricky balance, you know, to say we want, you know, there to be a source of these things, but we also appreciate that they need to be protected. It's just a, a complicated thing. And to say, this is what needs to be done. That's very difficult to do, you know, because it's so complex. And I guess that's what we do here, right? We talk about the complexities of issues. And so, you know, even the Tiger King probably has a place, um, but defining that place is very difficult and saying, okay, you, you know, you're, you're abusing your, your position or whatever. And I do think there were, I mean, there were places that were, um, uh, monitoring things that were going on and, you know, that kind of stuff. So there is some mm-hmm. oversight and, and with, with these kind of places. And I think, um, didn't they shut down that weird doctor dude that had all the, the doctor, lady friends, uh, Dr. Antle. <laughs> well, the, yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> like, the I, so I, I think they shut his place down. Maybe I heard that wrong, but anyway, no, I, I know, think, I think, uh, I think that's right. They, uh, mm-hmm. They took his animals from him, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there's there needs to be places that that breed, you know, venomous reptiles. And maybe that's, you know, for zoological institutions to do or, or you know, there, maybe there's some private keepers that can can do that responsibly and, and, and source, you know, or, or 
provide uh, animals for for zoos and um, wildlife parks or whatever. Well, do you Um, think that do you think that the private hobby, you know, the the average person who's like, well, if it's it's not illegal in my state and I'm going to do it. And, you know, do you think a bad outcome with that leads to you know, lawmakers just being like, nope, we're going to ban this. Like, so uh, uh, honestly, like the knee jerk reaction to, um, you know, to venomous reptiles where those institutions that might come along uh, that have a positive reason for keeping a venomous collection uh, really don't have that option anymore because it's been banned through their state or, you know, you just can't even keep Mm. those animals or. Yeah. um, Yeah. When they change the laws in a, in a state, I mean, sometimes, you know, legitimate institutions are, are grandfathered in or, or, you know, are given a special allowance or, you know, in, in my state, you, you have to get a permit to keep and breed or keep even keep venomous reptiles. And, and it's not easy to get. And, you know, I don't think it should be like, free for all, you know, just everybody keep a bit of a snake. If you want go to a reptile show, get a, you know, Viper in a deli cup and bring it home and, you know, see how you do with it. I I think there needs to be some structure, you know, some kind of structure in place to say, okay, let's make sure the people that are keeping them are doing so responsibly, you know, and and to get the, the uh, license or, or whatever in Utah, you have to have like, a, a three barrier system where you have two locked door, three locked doors between, you know, the outside and the reptile. So there's no, you know, if it gets out of its cage, it doesn't necessarily able to get out into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. The cobras in South Carolina and Texas. So, um, you know, I think that's appropriate. I don't think yeah. there's anything wrong with having some sort of rule system in place to say, Hey, you know, let's do this responsibly. And if you can show that you can, you're, you're thinking about it and you're doing things properly, or maybe you have to have anti-venom on hand or, or have a source of it that you have access to and not just yeah. say, you know, the hospital or give it to me or the nearest zoo will give it to me. You know, you have some kind of, um, B plan on that, especially if you're, if you have a big collection of hots, you know, there's, yeah. It's like not if, but when somebody's going to get bit with a big collection, even the best keepers in the world get bit, you know, once in their life, you know, so, you know, that's, that's after, you know, thousands of hours of reptile handling, but still it's, you know, it'll happen. So you got to be prepared. Yeah. And I mean, the, some, some of this venom so rare and so hard to get that, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, you're really risking your own life. Uh, yeah. if you, if you don't, if you don't, uh, procure the, the right anti-venom, uh, for some of the animals that, and, you know, I mean, man, it, there's some, you know, the, the mang vipers are amazing looking. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're, they're nuts. They're just yeah. insane. One of my favorite, but mm-hmm. mm, I don't think so, man. Not for they're me. You know? snakes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> you take a bite from one of those. I mean, I, I don't know how dangerous their venom is, but I mean, if you take a, any bite from a large venomous snake, they yeah. look, their heads look like they could put a lot of venom <laughs> yeah. into you. Their right? glands, their glands look very, very big. I, I you know, yeah. and so I, I wouldn't want to take a bite from something like yeah. that. No, uh, no, no. Um, but you know, you know I, I'm, fairly ignorant when it comes to venomous. I don't know a lot about venomous snakes or venomous snake keeping. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, seen lots of rattlesnakes in my days and then, you know, see them out around here and, and, uh, and, you know, I take, keep my distance or maybe, uh, take a picture or two, you know, and, and try to do so responsibly, but that's, you know, as 
far as yeah. I go. I, I kept well, a couple I, as a I kid, mean, but when I didn't realize it was illegal to do so, I had a couple of rattlesnakes as pets and we didn't have any incidences, but we came close to one or two. And, you know, that's kind of a scary thing to think about, but you know, uh, there's, mm-hmm. there should be some kind of rules in place to, to kind of hope, hopefully prevent some, some things that like that are happening from happening. And yeah, um, well, it just seems like, it seems like the stuff that's happening now is happening fast. Like, you know, the, you know, the South Carolina legislation that happened really fast. Like at least, at least it seemed like it did to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Nick was saying that they're not listening to USR or they're not listening to other people that are, they're just trying to push something forward, you know? And I don't think that's the, you know, that never works out either because then it's not based on reality. It's based on their fears. And so, you know, it's not going to solve the problem. It's just going to make people upset because they're not able to do things even in a responsible manner, you know, yeah. and I just don't think that's the, the way to well, go. Well, and I, I think you hit Unfortunately, it on politicians don't listen. Right? Yeah, I <laughs> think you hit it. Some you, do. Hit, you hit it on the head when you said it's easier to just ban stuff than it is yeah. to try to regulate it. And, you know, it's like, well, if we ban it, then it's just back end enforcement. Well, if we catch you with it, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, it's not legal yeah. to sell. It's not legal to own. But mm-hmm. we're not going to have to spend any real resource around policing it. It's just when we find it on the back end, we punish it, yeah. right? And that's yep. that's that's pretty much, I think, the 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 I, I think that's a very politician way to look at yeah at, at stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then it, and then it c- kind of creates a nanny state, or you know, like mm-hmm. a, you know, people that are passionate about it are going to do it one way or another, and so you know, they either leave the state or they do it under you know and well and we have keep it quiet or whatever and then we sure have an awfully strong gun lobby in this country and no yeah, politician right? wants to come take people's guns away because right? i mean they'll, do we they'll talk about lobby? it yeah they'll, <laughs> yeah they'll talk about it all day sure. and everybody's like oh the nra is horrible blah 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 they but mm. i mean to be honest you know they've they've secured gun rights for Americans for a long time. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, yeah. So. I, was, I was saying like, uh, you know, we have a school shooting like, you know, once a week or something, but as soon as you try to take away guns, but we have one Cobra escape and also yeah. going to ban it within that state. It's, it's right. pretty and ridiculous, you know? Uh, so having, you know, having those strong lobbies there for us to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to back us up and fight for our rights. It's yeah. just, you know, the, the amount of gun owners versus the amount of reptile owners in the United States are, you know, apples yeah, and oranges and yeah, numbers. That's and sure. that's, that's and, part and, of the problem. You know, we, we need to support those people that are kind of going to bat for us. You for know, sure. Support USR and, and, you know, make sure you're donating. And, you know, I set up a monthly donation just to make it easy. And, you know, I don't think about it and the money just goes to help. So hopefully that can continue yeah. and they can continue to fight for our rights. So. Well, uh, that wasn't even and our talk up today. your Cobra. Yeah. Lock <laughs> yeah, up your Cobras. Yeah. Keep those Cobras in their cages, guys. Come on. Yeah. Um, so today. So what is our topic? Yeah. yeah we're we're going to talk about, uh, feeding schedules. So there's, uh, you know, I, I think it's an important topic to discuss a, a lot of, uh, um, unhealthy or, you know, overweight reptiles exist in our hobby. And so we're going to talk about regular versus irregular feeding schedules. So we'll, we'll try to maybe help define those, you know, our, our ideas. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, let's get started. All right. Let's go with the, the coin toss here. Coin toss. Um, you ready to call so, it? So am I going for You ready to get I'll, it wrong? I'm just going to – I'll just call it you in there and then we'll figure out what we'll figure pro or irregular okay. or regular. All right, all right, all right. Ready? Okay. Go ahead. Throw <laughs> it. All right. All right. You Heads. <laughs> His tails. God Man, damn you it, You are dude. really bad at this. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I don't know. I have to let you flip you the coin. I, I was going to say yeah, I don't know yeah. who you are anymore. I'm sorry. It's just question. funny. Like just statistically, funny. What's, what are the odds, right? Yeah, statistically, you, you, you won a couple, haven't you? One. You won, you won once. Oh once. man. Once. Yeah. I can see why. I can, you it might be me. two. It might be two. I need to. We're like twelve episodes deep <laughs> yeah. right now. Like <laughs> I need to train the camera too, so you can see the coin and yeah. you can see yeah. that you got it yeah. wrong. Yeah, because statistically speaking, <laughs> this shouldn't happen. These yeah. are like these are like these are like the worst triple ball python <laughs> combo uh, ratios I'm going with right now. How yeah. much I lose. So, <laughs> well, you know, as as reptile keepers, we know that the odds don't always work out in our favor. Apparently, you know. <laughs> apparently, you're Especially using me to prove that rule. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember I what I bred like back in my ball python days I bred a Mojave to a lesser and I got five normals and one Mojave like out of six oh, eggs it's man. like you know the you had as good a chance as getting a leucistic as you did as getting a normal and this yeah. was back when leucistics were probably you know a thousand think, couple yeah, thousand yeah, dollars yeah. each you know yeah. it's like yeah, that's figures and that's how the odds go but apparently in flipping coins like I I just you know I'm amazing at the odds. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I am. Okay. Yeah. I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with the, the, the irregular feeding schedule and, and kind of push that proponent. So fine. Sorry, man. Fine. <laughs> you got to try to defend the, uh, regular weekly feeding schedule. Or All right. Whatever you want to call I'll, it. I mean, I like it, but I will do it. I'll okay. do it. All right. So I'm, All right. well, I'll, I'll go, you know what? I'll go Since first. I get to lose, you get to start. Yeah, okay, I'll, of course I'll you first. are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so I, I, I guess I would define an irregular feeding schedule. Maybe more appropriate term would be a natural feeding schedule. So based on their natural history, right? These animals have evolved to have a certain uh, diet and uh, timing of their diet and uh, prey availability it varies throughout the year. And so why not follow that in herpeticulture? So why not keep our animals and feed them kind of on a, on a schedule that they're used to from the wild? So um, I in the Green Tree Python book um, that Terry Phillip and I wrote, um, I, I included in there a bunch of details on some native uh, species that occurred within the range of green tree pythons in Australia and included like how big the weanlings were, you know, when they were released from their parents or, or set off on their own kind of thing. And, uh, you know, obviously snakes are going to feed on the dumbest, you know, newest animals and uh, that they can overpower and, and that are dumb enough to get caught or whatever, you know? And so I'm sorry, the dumbest, newest <laughs> yeah, animals. But, I just <laughs> made me laugh. Go ahead. So, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously they're going to, they're going to be feeding mostly on those and, and that kind of coincides with prey availability when, you know, the, the weanlings occur and most animals don't breed 
constitutively throughout the year. You know, they have defined breeding schedules and times when the when they have offspring. Uh, pythons are a great example. They breed once a year. It's generally they, you know, a lot of pythons will breed in the winter or or spring and then have, you know, their eggs a few months after that. And so, you know, we we uh, they have their natural rhythms and their natural cycles and, and their prey items do as well. So they're feeding more frequently on, you know, small, probably smaller, you know, weanling animals, uh, depending on the species and, and what they've, they catch. So, you know, it's a good idea to research the animals you keep, find out what some of their native prey items might be, and then see when those, you know, are, are produced or, or when the animal, you know, when their wet season is or whatever, you know, when, when animals are, are breeding and thriving in their natural habitat. So, that's how I would start this out. What do you got, man? Uh, I mean, uh, okay. Um, oh, I mean, I, you know, I think there's certainly uh, a, a case to be made for, um, you know, infrequent or, or kind of feeding uh, irregularly. But I think, you know, when you're talking about baby baby snakes and, and um you know, breeding animals that regular feedings actually, you know, I mean, we're not out in nature. We, we leverage all of the, uh, all of the, um, positive things that, that we can do by garnering resource and, and concentrating it in captivity. So, I mean, I think, you know, when you're raising babies, having a regular feeding schedule that helps them, um, you know, get up to size, uh, in a reasonable uh, time that doesn't make them fat and doesn't, you know, um, you know, th there's something to be said for that regularity. And I think one of the dangers of irregular feeding is that you're too irregular. And I think we've definitely seen that in the hobby where we went from, oh, I feed my snake every week, no matter how big or how, you know, old it is, uh, to I feed my animal hardly ever hardly ever and it, you yeah. know i barely give it any food and i right. you know i don't think either one of those are good so I, I think finding a schedule that is regular um is is a good thing uh i think you know the way you feed hatchlings and juveniles is not the way you feed you know sub adults and certainly not the way you feed adults so if you look at the growth curve and and the uh the energy needed or uh by you know uh hatchling animals versus adults you know they they take starkly different uh energy intakes to maintain themselves so mm -hmm. i i think you know you're definitely kind of and and it kind of depends if you are keeping animals in gigantic, you know, zoo type display enclosures and they're all over this cage and they're moving all around and, you know, it really expending a lot of energy, then maybe you can afford to feed them a little bit more often. Um, but but I think I think the point that I would make is that that regular feeding is is to the benefit probably of the keeper in, in keeping a schedule so that you're you're on a schedule, you're you're making sure that you're caring for the animal as far as its needs um, and that the animal is getting 
you know, uh, the, the nutrition that it needs regularly enough to grow at the rate that it should. And now what that frequency is, is probably what we could all argue about what, what is, when is too soon and how much is too much. Um, mm-hmm. but I think that regular feeding, there's nothing wrong with regular feeding. Um, so I think that's probably where I'd go with that. Yeah. And I, you know, I agree that, you know, you, it's hard to feed a juvenile, uh, too frequently, but of course that depends on the species, you know, but as far as, you know, pythons go where I have the most uh, experience, um, you know, they're going to grow long and thin rather than fat. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. usually bulk up until they reach adult size. Now, another um, aspect or, or issue that's in herpeticulture, I think, is we often uh, conflate, you know, maximum size with adult size. And so we have that idea of like, oh, it needs to get, you know, a coastal carpet needs to be 12 feet before it reaches, you know, yeah. adult size. But no, they get adult size at like five feet, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're yeah. adult size then. And, and so I think that misconception is, is very common in herpeticulture. And so that needs to be addressed. So, um, um, but but getting them to that adult size and then slowing down and, and maybe adopting a more natural schedule. Now, of course, you know, a, a green tree python in the wild, um, as you know, the papers have shown, feeds very infrequently. So if you follow a natural feed schedule, you know, you also need to be prepared for a natural reproductive cycle and a natural uh, uh, other, you know, aspects of their keeping. Now, that are they healthier? Yeah. And are they going to live longer? Yeah. Are they going to have less eggs? Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Um, but if they, but if they live longer, you're taking, what you're probably doing is taking the same amount of eggs and stretching them out over a longer period of time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you may be talking about the same, the same number of, of offspring. You just, you're just taking it out over a much longer period of time. Yeah. And, and also I, uh, the, the feeding, you know, the way they feed or the amount they feed on or whatever also goes to, um, they, they have different mechanisms that decide whether or not their eggs are going to be larger or they're going to have more eggs per, per clutch. And so those kind of things, you know, there's, there's been some research done and a little bit of insight into that, but you know, we're still learning a lot of things. So, you know, maybe switching up your, your feeding cycle could result in maybe smaller clutches, but the eggs are larger and the babies are easier to get established or get going or whatever, you know, so maybe there's trade-offs or, or benefits from that. So, you know, if, if you can, um, I guess maybe, and, and along those same lines, you know, you, like maybe one year a green tree python feeds on just a few, you know, a handful of meals in the whole year. Whereas another year it might be a really good year and there's plenty of prey around and, you know, they gorge themselves because, you know, green tree pythons don't pass up a meal, <laughs> which right, is, right. you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, we need to pay attention to the behaviors of our snakes because some, you know, some species are opportunistic. They come from a hard, you know, area. And so they're going to eat whenever they have the chance because that's their programmed, Mm -hmm. that's programmed into them. That's their, you know, evolutionary biology. But if, you know, in the wild, the feeding opportunities only come by every once in a while. So they need that response. Whereas in captivity, if they're getting a meal a week, you know, they're like, Oh, more, you know, more food. And then we have a, a, an unhealthy over, you know, fed snake. I, I really, you know, 
part of this really came to light with a post from Matt Somerville where he posted his uh, Ingram's brown snake, right? Did you see that post? It was a necropsy mm-hmm. post and he had, uh, you know, had, had a, one of his snakes die and he'd only fed it once that year. And apparently it only eats, you know, maybe a couple times a year, but even on that very, you know, limited feeding schedule, the whole, uh, you know, abdomen of the snake was filled with fat deposits. Mm -hmm. So there are some species that are just exceedingly good at storing energy, right? And and snakes is in general are, are that way, you know, there's, uh, there's some species that probably eat, uh, quite a bit, you know, they might mm-hmm. need to be fed every, every couple of days, especially some that may be insectivorous or, you know, um, eat other, you know, easily digestible, or they, they have a high metabolism, like, uh, you know, various colubrids, um, you know, coach whips and things like that. They're fast moving and, you know, eat, you know, probably as much as they can catch their prey. Um, so like you said, you know, it depends on the species. Um, but you know, that that's all something that needs to be taken into consideration when you're deciding, you know, what species you're going to keep or, or deciding on a new species, you need to learn about their natural history. And so that's kind of, maybe we're hitting it from two different angles, but understanding their natural history is key to keeping them happy and healthy and and feeding them appropriately. So with a, you know, an Ingram's, uh, brown snake, uh, you might only need to feed it a couple times a year, you know, that, that might be, and that might be too much, who knows? (laughs) So, you know, that it, it just depends on the species. Whereas like, uh, you know, I've got some shovel nose snakes and, and, you know, I feed them several times a week and they, they don't get fat, you know, they're, they're, they're doing pretty well and they probably eat quite a bit because insects are a lot less, um, have a lot less energy to them, at least some insects than, than like say a rodent, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of fat on a mammal versus an insect, which is, you know, a lot of chitin and (laughs) stuff like, you know, indigestible matter. matter. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely, well, and I think that's one of the the things we kind of, I, I don't want to say we gloss over, but I think it's easy to say like, oh, snakes eat rodents, you know, and well, I mean, yeah, but is that what their natural diet is? Is And, and you know, what that what is the frequency they encounter, whatever their natural diet is, and that that will tell you a little bit about their intake. So if, you know, we give them a, you know, a highly nutritious, but also, you know, m- maybe too nutritious of a, of a food source. And, you know, they're, they don't move around, uh, like they would in the wild, or, uh, maybe, maybe they just sit the same, but the food source is, it has so much more fat content or, or nutrient content that so much more of it gets stored to fat, uh, because they're, they're not burning it. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it just goes to the detriment of the animal. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I, I used to think that, letting your animal clean out and uh you know when you're when you're cooling them down and that was a food that was strictly a uh so your animal doesn't throw it up and and you know clean them out so that when they're reproducing that they don't have to deal with food and that that was my old way of thinking and my new way of thinking is that's just their off season that's when you know everything shut down and i noted and this was in the tracy eye that i noticed this is is 
they're absolutely psychopaths when it comes to, you know, summer, summer to fall months. And they'll take food just like, I mean, it's, it's scary. They're scary. Uh, (laughs) and, 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 you know, you can start introductions and, and start doing that. And they add, they're just food, 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 food in their head. And, And all of a sudden they make that flip and then they just, they completely are so much less interested in food. They go into their breeding mode and they, they're just like clockwork. Once they lay their eggs, you give them a month or, or so, then you start introducing small food to them again and they're right back on it. And it's just a nice cycle. And, and, and for me, I think I tend to, to feed a little bit heavier, uh, in the, in the, you know, the, the late spring, summer to fall months and, and kind of, you know, taper it off and, and let them do their thing and then start it over again. So they have this, you know, larger ebb and flow. But when I feed, I feed on a, on a schedule, you know what I mean? It helps me, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, but there's an, there's still a, a cycle. So I think there's something definitely to, you know, when we talk about infrequent feeding, uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, w- we have to talk about feeding on a cycle. I think that's a natural thing. I think that whether you're feeding heavily for a period of the year and then giving them an off or feeding infrequently around the year, um, I don't think that either of those are wrong in the correct situation. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, younger animals, babies can probably be fed less frequently year round whereas uh sub adults and adults probably need to be fed you know cyclically through the season especially if you're breeding them maybe if you're not going to breed them or whatever then maybe you can feed them infrequently and i guess that's the other thing too is is you know if you're not trying to breed your snake maybe you really don't need to you know if you if you want you know a uh, uh a snake that'll live 20, 25 years and you don't care about breeding them, then no, you probably don't need to give them the caloric intake that somebody mm-hmm. who's trying to breed their animal does. Right. I mean, sure. That's kind sure. of my thought. Yeah. Um, I, I also, you know, when we're talking pythons, um, you know, there's, there's been some research that shows when a, a python digests a large meal, they're, organs increase in size to, Mm -hmm. you know, to handle that additional, um, you know, to increase the metabolism, to digest that meal and, and store that, you know, as fat or make energy out of it or whatever. And so, you know, when you're, um, consider, you know, if you're feeding a, a Python, a large meal once a week, your, you know, their organs are getting bigger and then they're getting smaller and then they're getting bigger and they're getting smaller. That could take a toll on the animal, you know, and really shorten its lifespan and, and cause, you know, issues. So I, I would, you know, definitely, uh, recommend keeping that in mind too, especially if you're keeping pythons. Um, there, I was reading, uh, um, a, a paper, um, maybe it was a, he was a thesis, uh, Gavin Bedford's mm-hmm. uh, thesis, and he he measured you know the increase in metabolism using a certain biomarker. I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, and he found that when he was and I think this was with uh, water pythons or olive pythons. One, of the, I, I want to say that know, sounds right. That sounds he, he right. might have he might have done it in a few species, but he he the the my take home from that, what, you know, when I was reading was that if he fed a meal that was less than 20% of the animal's weight, he didn't see that increase in metabolism. 
like he did with the larger meals. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you might feed more frequently if you're feeding smaller meals. And I've heard many people, uh, uh, have, have reported, you know, that that's very successful in their breeding regimen when they, you know, when they do increased feedings that they feed a lot of small meals rather than one large meal. Um, and I don't know if there's a cumulative, cumulative effect. Like if you're feeding five, you know, meals that are 20%, you know, that's, that's going to, uh, make for a larger food bolus. So I don't know how long you need to wait in between meals, if, you know, if, or else you're going to ramp up the metabolism. So that may be a question that hasn't been answered at this point. But, you know, the idea of feeding smaller meals may in the long run be more healthy for the animals because you're not ramping up their metabolism like, uh, mm -hmm. like a, a large meal does. Well, I, I mean, uh, so just me just me in my head thinking and 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 for me the way i think about it is um these animals are able to take very large meals right that's part of their that you know that that's part of their natural history is to be able to take prey that are much larger than them and and take it down and digest it and and so that that had that that physiology is, is there for a reason. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, you sure. use it, use it for what it is, but take it for what it is. And so I have no issue feeding, you know, if I'm going to ramp up an animal's uh, metabolism like that, then maybe I'll, I'll capitalize on that, uh, and feed them several large meals spaced out over a period of time, uh, and then let them go for a while. You know, mm -hmm. let it, let it, everything calm down. And, but then, you know, take, take half the year off. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, I, I think, I think that when you're, w w the problem is people do maybe meals that borderline on, on ramping up their metabolism in that, uh, uh in, in that heavy, you know, maybe extra, uh, difficult way for them and they do it you know, feeding after feeding after feeding, thinking that that's kind of the normal size or, or that what they're doing is just fine. And they, and they're, you know, they're constantly like revving, basically they're revving the, the metabolism of that animal over and over and over. Yeah. And that probably takes its toll. But if you rev that metabolism up and you rev it up for a period and then you just let it go and, and, you know, they, they, they go right back. Um, and you know, you, mean, I mean, you mean like a natural cycle? Is that what you're talking about? Well, natural no, I mean, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, listen, I, I think the best teacher of anything is nature. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, I, as I said from the jump, that you know, a seasonal, uh, a seasonal cycle that's regularly fed uh, is just fine. Um, you know, it's the infrequent feedings that I think are the, are the issue where, you know, or, or, or maybe they're not, maybe people, I mean, I think there's so many ways you can skin the cat with, with sure. feeding snakes and, yeah. and reptiles. I mean, I, obviously I think, you know, varanids and, and a lot of lizard species, they, they're really not forgiving in, in the way they need to be fed sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you're not keeping them up and you're not, you know, I, I would say a varanid likes a ramped up immune system and it likes to be fed. And as long as it's heated and fed, it does pretty well. I mean, you can obviously see people who take that way too far and you can see morbid, morbidly obese, you know, varanids sure. too. So, I mean, I think, you know, but generally those are, those are not kept 
appropriately. If you keep a monitor appropriately and give it a basking spot, you know, 150 degrees that it needs to, you know, keep that high. They're, they're kind of like a high octane species and they need yeah, constant yeah. fuel and constant heat. But, you know, in the wild, a lot of these come from maybe areas where it does cool down, like, a you know, Prenti in, in central Australia is going to get you know, lower temperatures in the winter and they're going to slow down and hang mm-hmm. out in a cave where it's, you know, more thermally stable and, and wait until it heats up and, and they can go out and get more food. Now, maybe they come out later in the day and, you know, in the heat of the day, it, it gets warm enough uh, that they can go eat and properly digest. But I think a lot of reptiles are definitely programmed to know, you know, when things are changing, you don't want to tempt fate and start taking down a big meal if it's might get cold but yeah you know that so, so there's a lot of things that go into that but yeah I, you know that's true there's some that need that constant input and i think you know that's what i was mentioning with the you know the and i mean what's 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 cold insects. to you what's cold to you yeah you yeah know, I, 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 I mean i and I, I'm just saying cold that shuts down their metabolism a little bit. Yeah. And has them yeah. slow down, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I, I think that that differs for, again, for different species. Like, I mean, I, I, we were out cruising in Northern Queensland, um, around Cairns area and we were looking for, you know, jungle carpet pythons and, and, um, it was rainy and it was, you know, in the low seventies or high sixties. And, you know, I, I think it was probably 10 minutes after I said, we're not going to find any carpet pythons in this weather. There was a jungle carpet crawling across the road and he was highly active and very feisty. You know, yeah. I was like, okay, so yeah, maybe my idea of what they need or what kind of temperatures are good for them is off base. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they do better at seventies or, you know, sometimes, but you know, they, they need, that, that range of choices, you know, I don't know if he was out hunting or if he was just trying to get back to his, you know, shelter site or what I, you know, I couldn't ask him. He, he wasn't very responsive to my questions. So, you know, it's hard to say what he was out there doing maybe looking for a mate or, you know, you never <laughs> know um, what, what gets a snake out and out and moving sometimes, but you know, the, the, uh, I, uh, you know, he could have been hunting. Who knows? I, I don't know. It's hard to say. But despite your um, best line of questioning, yeah, it still he, remains he just, a mystery. Uh, his answer was just a hiss every time yeah. and a strike. You know, I was yeah. like, okay, all right. If that's yeah. the way you want to play it, I'll just take pictures and let you on your way. You and go. you know, it'd be fun to just follow that thing around. You know, but sure. and, and, and you know, with with pythons, uh, they're also built for a sedentary lifestyle. They, yeah. they're a sit and wait predator. I would, I would almost venture to, to wager if you, you know, ha- found a Python in a, in a tree hollow or something and you didn't disturb it, but you stuck a, you know, a pre-killed prey item in there for it to eat, it would probably stay in the same place for the whole year, you know, unless sure. it adds and, and you stuck a, you know, the opposite, you know, gender in there for it to, to make babies with and, you know, and you brought it food and you brought it a mate and, if it didn't have to go out, it probably wouldn't. They're built to sit, sit around, you know, and they're highly yeah. efficient. So they only need a couple prey items a year. I think um, that was another part of uh, Gavin Bedford's research. And yeah, hopefully I'm not quoting this wrong and he can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but he showed that with like Stimson's pythons, they needed like maybe 20 mice a year to, to just perform you know the basic functions of a stimson's python so i mean that's 
what, 20 a year. That's one every other week at the most, you know, just to, so, you know, they, they don't require a lot of food and, and, um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure how he calculated that or what, what went into that. I can't recall the the details of it, but that's kind of what stuck in my mind is, you know, are we, if we're feeding once a week, we're probably feeding a Python too much. That that's kind of my, possibly. my take on I mean, that message, but yeah, maybe if you're possibly. feeding a, a fuzzy mouse once a week, um, you know, I think he calculated based on a certain weight of mouse, maybe it was like mm-hmm. a 15 to 20 gram mouse or something. So if you're feeding a, a five gram mouse uh, to a, to an adult, they probably will like go, what are you doing? But you know, yeah, the whole thing well, will just fit in their mouth. But I you mean, know, they, my, yeah. fir- the first year, uh, babies of Tracy, I, they're going on three years old right now and they don't, I'm, I'm kind of like, man, am I just, am I not feeding right? Like I, they just don't, they're, they're really lean, they're long, but they don't mm-hmm. look like three-year-old. What, what I, what, what I would cons- what most people, well, I think what most people, I'll say that what most yeah. people would consider a three-year-old uh, scrub Python to look like. I, and, and so, you know, I how mean, many, how many three-year-old scrub pythons has anyone seen in the wild? You know, how, well, and that's, like, that's the thing. And that's my, and, and that, yeah. that's to my point is, yep. you know, we, I think we kill it all with kindness and anthropomorphism and, and uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're, you know, and, and I mean, to be honest, uh, I, I get, I get the idea of more feeding to get animals size and, 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 and in a breed, in a breeding regime there, there's probably, I mean, I think there's shines research, research will back up that, that, you know, um, in a, in an area of plentiful prey resource, those animals are highly reproductive, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and a lot of animal, a lot of babies can be produced there because there's a lot of resource there and where there's not a lot sure. of resource, less babies get produced because it's, it's just a cause and effect of, uh, of the predator predation, uh, you know, plentifulness. Uh, and yeah, so I think, you know, term that the golden spoon hypothesis when you're right. born under a good year, you know, these, car- these water pythons were hatching in a good year and got plenty of prey and they went on to have more frequent reproductive activities and larger clutches and, and more, you know, offspring overall. So of course, you know, they want that. And, and, and again, that, you know, maybe is particular to their early life rather than when they're adults. So, you know, those, those kind of things have to be taken in context as well. well. And and I think, you know, in in that, in that research, I don't know if he was looking at longevity of adults and things like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that when you eat uh, a hot, you know, a high intake of prey, you, you can suffer from the natural uh, health effects of, of eating a lot. And um, you know, I, I, I think when you look at captive breeding, um, you, you can kind of leverage the ideas that Shine proved out to help you breed more animals. Maybe those animals mm-hmm. don't live as long because you know they're they're being revved up younger and and they're they're and like so like what we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier is you know let, fed more frequently more uh larger prey items maybe Mm -hmm. uh they live less but they produce more eggs in in that period whereas you know an animal that was fed less 
will live longer and produce the same amount in a much longer period. So it's, it's kind of, you know, to be honest, I don't know that there's a right answer to, to the way you should feed your Python or, mm-hmm. or your reptile. Um, but I, I think it, it definitely has to do with the goals. And I, I think that's kind of, if you want, you know, an animal for 20 years and it's your pet and then, yeah, don't, you don't need to feed as much and, and smaller prey yeah. items less often. Uh, but if you, if you, if you're a breeder and that's what you need to do, then, then maybe, you know, having a bit more of a, 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 a an energy intensive, um, you know, food regime that's, that's regularly, uh, you know, given, uh, is appropriate. Okay. Yeah, I, I stuck my, no, I, you know, I, I, I think, uh, well, I, I was listening to, to Nick, uh, Mutton on, uh, Eric and Owen's podcast or on Morelli Python's radio. The most and, recent uh, NPR. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, he was he was saying that uh, you know, yeah, you can feed them more often. They're just going to poop it out. So you're basically, you know, f- feeding, wasting your money by feeding them large meals that they're not going to metabolize appropriately. Now, you know, I, I, I'm, I've, I've read some papers where I'm pretty sure there's they're they're pretty highly efficient even with larger prey items, and they they are able to metabolize. But I do think there is a trade-off between size and how much energy they're getting it out and how much waste they're producing from that food item. But I'd have to refresh my memory on that research. But there's some papers that have been published that show, you know, with different sizes and different frequencies, you know, how how efficient they were and how much energy they got out of of those meals. So that's, you know, that's uh, also very interesting and and, uh, applicable research to this, to this discussion. But, uh, if, uh, let's see, what was my other line of thought in that regard? Um, if, if you're, you know, with, with, uh, kind of going back to the maximum size and adult size, you know, differentiation, that was another thing Nick hit on as well is like, we, we think they need to be this huge animal. And, and yeah. oftentimes those larger animals that are overfed and, and have huge fat reserves or whatever, they're, they're not the best breeders either. You know, your lean, you know, three-year-old, uh, Tracy is going to be a much better breeder than some, you know, giant 12 foot, Tracy, you know, he was saying how many, how many 16, 20 foot scrubs do you see on eggs? None. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's impossible. Yeah. I don't know that I would say that I, I, but you know, it depends. They might be 20 years old though. You know, sure. sure. I mean, I think there's like, depending on the species, like if there's male combat, the males are going to try to be big. Right. Yeah. They're going to try right. to be the tough guy and they're going to try right. to pass on their genes. So, you know, it's not always an absolute like a smaller male is going to be a better breeder because maybe, no. uh, but you might need to combat them or, you know, get have them expend some of that energy that they're building up and, and use that size to show they're the boss to kind of stimulate that breeding. So, again, well, I think scrubs you know, is a good example of, of uh, a species where males are, are big boys. Oh, yeah. So, oh, oh and, yeah. They, and they can they can kill each other. <laughs> you yeah. Gotta, you got to be really careful if you're combating. A, but you know, throw in a shed skin from another male and watch them lose their mind and pace yeah. the cage and freak yeah. out. You know, yeah, wrestle the shed or something. Sa- safer ways. Yeah, safer yeah, ways exactly. Uh, but you know, we, we we need to keep keep those natural history elements in mind. And I think that's what it all boils down to. Mm-hmm. If you're paying attention to the natural history of your the animal you're keeping, you're gonna probably fare a little better. Now, 
are there tweaks to that? Of course. I, I really like that quote from Terry Phillips where he's like, yeah, I, I, uh, we have prairie rattles around here and, and it snows, but I, I'm not shoveling snow into my prairie rattler cage, you know, yeah. like yeah. that's, that's just makes sense. And so we need to find the, the important, uh, minimally needed, you know, things that, that will re result in success. And I think a lot of times in herpetoculture, we get to a point where we're like, okay, this is what it is. I just have to do this, or I just have to follow the schedule, or I just have to feed it, you know, 20 mice a year and I'm good. Mm -hmm. You know, that might not apply in every situation. You might have, you know, it might be warmer no. where you're from, or it might be colder where you're from. And if you're feeding 20, that's too much, or it's too little, you know, it's, it all depends on, on you. And so that's the key is we need to be observant. I, I love uh, Eric's, you know, where he's calling student of the serpent. I don't think he coined that. I can't remember who, uh, maybe that was the uh, boy guy. What's his name? I'm, I'm terrible. I can't remember names to save my lives, but, um, anyway, the, the, uh, student of the serpent, you know, watching what your snake does, watching kind of the success or output or whatever, and taking that into account and building that knowledge and, and, you know, your success over time. And, and I think a lot of times people want that boiled down and handed to them in a nice little package. How do I, how do I be successful with this animal? Well, you know, care sheets, they want the care. Exactly. Sheet. They want yeah. the care sheet option. And give you know, me the cliff I, notes. I, I think everybody's been guilty that because that's a good place to jump off. You sure. know, that's a good place to start, but well, that's not a good place to end. When yeah, you just when you don't know. It, yeah. When you don't know, of, yeah. <laughs> regardless of the outcome, you're going to follow that care yeah. sheet no matter what, because so-and-so was successful with it, you know? Well, and I kind of so. feel like that's kind of the, uh, the appeal of, of field herping, I think is a mm. lot as people go out and they say, man, I can, I can observe you know these animals in the wild what they're doing mm -hmm. I, I you know you you kind of figure out quickly that that all of the great things we glean is from natural history and nature is the teacher so yeah. you know going out and field herping gives you the opportunity to you know you can watch what it does in a cage but if you watch what it does in nature that will inform far informs more than what it's doing in the cage. I think. Oh yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, like, you know, like you said, if you went into, you know, find a wild tracier, you're going to see something that's probably lean and thin and smaller. You know, if you could, yep. I, I love the, the example that, um, uh, Daniel Natouche gave, like he was at that arboreal symposium. Mm -hmm. Put on back a while back. I think yeah, it was, was the only one they did. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and he gave Which a talk. Sucks. And, I wish. They yeah. I, I yeah, I didn't. I didn't make it to that one. Ben Ben Morrill was there. So yeah. Lucky Ben. Way. Yeah. I I didn't make it out to that one. It was on the East Coast. But anyway, he uh, he was giving a talk about you know wild green tree pythons, and he said that he's seen like three out of a thousand that were over a thousand grams. Yeah. And now the recommendation, the care sheet said your female needs to be over a thousand grams before she reproduces, you know, and, and then you're getting like 30 eggs and, and 20 slugs from this giant, yeah. you know, six foot female or whatever, that's over a thousand grams and, you know, or, or two or 3000 grams, you know, however, you, however big they used to get them or still get them, I guess, in a lot of cases. Some, but, yeah, some, you know, I, I think the trend is, is moving towards, more reasonably sized animals. Yeah. But, and you I know, mean, the majority of green tree pythons in the wild are around the 600 gram mark. You know, they're, they're not huge animals. They're a small species of Python. Yeah. Now, for sure. 
do they reproduce regularly in the wild? Probably not. If you're, if your main goal is to reproduce an animal, you might want them a little bit bigger. I don't know. You know, I don't know how that uh, plays out with success, but you know, the, there are a lot of females that die in captivity pretty regularly because people overfeed them, I think. And, And they have other issues like, you know, prolapses or, or, you know, tail hanging because it's full of crap, you know, that yeah. just too much energy that they can't really handle it or yeah. something. I, I is, is, you know, and they're maybe dehydrated on top of that because they're kept too warm and there's all sorts of things that go into that. So, you know, it's hard to say this is exactly well, what's it, causing it, but we know what's contributing to it. So, and it's and, really and overfeeding it's, is terrible. It, it's really you know. interesting when you stop overfeeding those things and you stop overheating those things and you just keep them, you know, perched very simply they're so easy. They're just freaking yeah. super hands off. Like mm-hmm. just, you know, don't, don't open the cage in the middle of the night and get your face bit off. <laughs> and that's really the biggest thing you have to worry about. I mean, they're yeah. super easy. And I just think that, you know, we, we've, we can be our own worst enemy sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and conventional wisdom being the root of all evil, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, Hey, we're learning and growing all, all of us together. So, you know, nobody's fault and somebody got an animal to a thousand grams and they bred it and they said, well, that's, that's what it is. That's what that's, I needed. That's, that's, it that's didn't it. breed until it was a thousand yeah, grams. That's it. Know? That's it. So not taking into account that it, you know, was not being, you know, not being kept the way it wanted to be, or it was imported. So it was stressed and it took, several years to breed until it settled down. You know, there's so many things that go into that. And, you know, it's, it's hard to fault those, the people who's, who, uh, that, that information, you know, on wild green tree pythons wasn't out there. And that was kind of one of the, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write that book was because, you know, that, that information wasn't out there and there was a lot of misconceptions about what a green tree python is. And there was information out there and even green tree people at the time were like, yeah, this book isn't the best book on mm. what we know now. Maybe this mm-hmm. information is dated and we need to yeah. update it. And and I think yeah. that, you know, that 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 we can look back on older books and and cringe a little and say like, mm-hmm. ah, like for the time that was the best information that we knew. But that's why you buy that's why you buy the new edition, right? That's why you're updating the Carpet Python book. Like mm-hmm. it, it, things come to light, man. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, well, and, and I, I, and, you know, frankly, I, you when know, we were I going, think we learn. Oh, right, right in the second edition of the Carpet book that you mentioned, um, we, I, I realized we hadn't really talked about that idea of maximum versus adult size, and you know, so I went back through some of the papers, and I realized there was some really good research and papers that we'd quoted in the first book, but we hadn't made the point of the average size mm-hmm. of all the adults that were collected is this, you know? So I, that's, that's in the new edition. So hopefully there's more information and helpful information and, and you know, kind of in that context of some of the misconceptions, you know, Oh, coast. Everybody says, Oh, coastal carpets are 14 feet long. Well, yeah, one might've gotten that big or a couple, you know, I've seen some 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 of my buddies out on the, the east coast of Australia have found some pretty freaking huge coastal carpets. Um, are are they the key reproductive animals in their population? 
probably not. Maybe they're the top male. Maybe they're the the you know that big huge guy that's uh, getting all the ladies. Maybe knows, they're twenty five you know? years old or, and or yeah, know, maybe they're, they're eighty the and they're retired hell, and, and they're yeah. just hanging out in the rafters of yeah. a barn and whiling out their days. I you know yeah. who knows. Yeah. So maybe they're addicted to you know brush tail possums and they got <laughs> go catch more brush tail possums. They're just so they're so tasty. I just yes. love the taste of a brush tail possum. And, and you know they were showing the introduced. Uh, um, animals like uh, the brush-tailed possum, speaking of those, in Darwin area, they were kind of inva- becoming an invasive species in that area. And the Darwin carpets were getting big. There were some yeah. huge male Darwin carpets. And Darwin carpets, uh, you know, ex- have that male combat. Uh, they, well, they like to fight and, each other. And, and so, you know, that's maybe they're they're taking advantage of those new species and getting bigger and bulkier and heavier and tougher or whatever. So, and I think um, a good way to keep, uh, at least a lot of my pythons lean is to feed them smaller, you know, smaller meals. So they, they, they tend to grow longer and stay smaller. But when you start upping that food size and you're increasing the, the size of that food, the diameter of that food, that to me, that's when I see that animal really start to girth out and get larger. So I think, mm-hmm. I think they're, you know, in, in a, in, in kind of just a natural response to the type of food they're intaking, you'll see how their body reacts to that. And and when they start taking big, big meals, that's when you see them girth up, you know, mm-hmm. but if you keep them on smaller meals more often, at least, at least the scrubs that I've seen, they tend to just grow much longer and stay much leaner. Now I'm sure mm-hmm. you could take that to the max and really just, you know, pump them full of smaller meals and, you know, uh, all the time, all the time. And, and they'll start to get, you know, fat over that, but you know, it's really, and and I see it in younger animals when I'm transitioning to rats or something that's a little bit bigger. That's when I really notice them start to change from, you know, a skinny lean animal to a little girthier of an animal. Um, and that was back when I used to probably feed a little heavier and maybe that's completely anecdotal and all bullshit, (laughs) but that's, that's what I kind of notice. You know what I mean? And, uh, well, and you've adjusted your feeding, you know, regimen accordingly, you know, absolutely. And, And I think, you know, uh, uh, baby you know a nursing rat uh fuzzy is going to be higher in fat content than a than a weanling mouse at the same size yeah you know that weanling mouse is going to have they're starting to eat solid food on their own they're not nursing from their mother they're a little leaner and and scraggly you know they're trying to make their own way and they're a little uh, scragglier um they're going to be leaner and less the animals are going to put on less fat because yeah. of that so yeah i think it depends on you know what you're what you're feeding as well what species and yep. and i think yep. that you I know agree. some of the some of the reptiles you know like the their size maybe dictates what they're getting fed to some extent like mm-hmm. say like a large python if you're if you're feeding it jumbo rats what are jumbo rats they're like retired breeders they're mm-hmm. old and fat all my retired breeder rats are, are fat they're, yeah. that's why i usually get rid of them is when i see them start they like is that pregnant nope it's just fat it's okay just you're fat. out of here you know you're you're <laughs> yeah. done yeah. And, and and but then i go feed it to my snake so they're getting an extra dose of that old fat rat and so you know the animals that are of a larger size may be more prone to obesity and captivity because they're getting those 
older, fatter, you know, retired and, and, readers. And, and, and maybe, maybe we nothing... should be feeding something else. You know, maybe well, we or, a, or maybe yeah. you feed that old fat retired rat and you don't feed that much, you know, you feed very, very infrequently. So, yeah, you know, yeah. you're, you you have to change, you have you to change two of those a, a year or something. Yeah, you know, exactly. Exactly. How, how, it, how it behaves. Yeah. yeah. So paying attention, being a student of the serpent, you know, keeping an eye on your animals, no matter you know, if Chuck tells you to feed it every week, you know, don't listen to that. Don't listen to Chuck. You know? Don't. <laughs> don't. He's, he's way off his rocker. In that. Make but, your yeah, own you, decisions. Look at the, look at the uh, natural history. G- give him a, an infrequent or an irregular feeding regimen. And I, I, I think they'll be, you'll know, be better off, uh, you know, but pay attention well, and to at what the, the snake's same, doing. And at the same time, if Justin tells you that infrequent <laughs> feeding is is clearly the way to go with your baby snake, don't listen to him either because he may not know what the freaking heck he's talking about. <laughs> uh, oh. So, well, I, I, I don't think, know. Uh, I, I pretty much exhausted know. what I have to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good discussion on the topic. I, I think we brought up you know yeah. some reasonable things to think about, and you know, again, just pay attention to your snake, you know, Yeah. if, and, I'll, I'll, and don't just assume, you know, everything off the, off the bat or off the first year, because you read a good care sheet or a book, even the, you know, the complete carpet Python, that might not be all you need to do is just read that. You might need to go do your own research or go find them in Australia or do whatever. I, I'm <laughs> There's sure, a lot of things to learn. I'm sure Nick and Justin would say that's one of the things you need to do, but probably <laughs> not the only obviously, thing. Yeah, yeah. Probably not the only yeah, thing, you know, <laughs> uh, so, but you know, that's, uh, that was a good discussion. I yeah, think, uh, not bad. Not bad. We covered some good ground, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that was a, uh, mild disagreement, uh, club or, a, or a reptile fight club discussion. I'm not sure, but a yeah. uh, good discussion nonetheless. Yeah. I, I got a little angry there. Yeah. No, you, not well, really. yeah. <laughs> um, cool, man. Well, yeah, we, uh, appreciate you guys listening and, uh, thanks for, for supporting us. And, uh, if you've got something to fight about or you want to fight somebody, let us know. We're, we're welcome to, we, we want to fi- have some other, uh, opinions and, and input on this show. So, you know, hit us up if you want to fight, let us know. So thanks for uh, listening and we'll catch you next week for another reptile fight club. Later, everybody. Fight club. Fight club.